prayers. Have a great time with that. Let's stand this evening for the reading of God's Word, James chapter number 4. Rose, it's good to see you back. It's been a good long time since Rose has been here. She, uh, she's been running from God on us. No, I'm, I'm teasing you, Rose. Uh, Rose has been down in Pennsylvania, and Rose has had uh, an interesting ride, but I'm glad you're back. Glad you're back. James 4, and we'll look from verse 4 down through verse 10 this evening. The Bible says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now we looked at those two verses as well as 1 through 3 last week. Let's look at verse 6 here. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Tonight we'll look at this topic, spiritual adultery. Now what? Now what? Let's pray. God, I pray that as we piggyback on last Sunday night's sermon, and we look a little bit deeper and fuller into the passage. Lord, we're glad that not only are you good at exposing sin, but you're also good at giving us a formula to get out of that sin and, Lord, to have restoration from it. And this morning, as we looked at your faithfulness, and we talked about how your faithfulness is amazing, it is flawless, and you're faithful to us in spite of our lack of ability to be faithful to you. And, Lord, on some in some ways, we'll expound deeper in that, and we'll look at our inadequacies and our times of running from You and not being what we ought to be. Lord, I pray tonight we would cling to the practical steps in James 4. We would follow them. Lord, we would make them a daily checklist, a weekly checklist in our lives. And we'd make sure that we're doing these things so that we can stay away from sin. And to the one here, Lord, that has fallen in love with sin and is having a hard time breaking away, Lord, would they look at this passage as their formula to success. Help us, Lord, tonight to have discerning hearts as we look at this, uh, the, this passage and understand these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Last week we looked uh, very closely and carefully at uh, the first uh, five verses there of James chapter 4. And we talked about how that falling in love with sin is equivalent to God labeling it as being a spiritual adulterer or adulteress. God likens friendship with worldly people or friendship with worldly things to committing adultery with your spouse. That's the parallel that he draws. Let me say tonight, we ought to be very, very careful how we live our lives as Christians in a time where there is sin everywhere. It is everywhere. I've said it many times and I'll continue to say it. It is okay for a boat to be in the water. It is dangerous for that water to be inside that boat. Christian, it is okay for you to live in the world. It is not okay for the world to live inside of you. John echoes James' sentiment through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says this in 1 John 2, 15, 16, and 17. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Again, here in this passage, God directly commands Christians through the penmanship of John 
not to love the people and not to love the things of this world. To echo the sentiment from last week, can you imagine how you would feel if you found out that your spouse had been unfaithful to you? All of those horrible emotions that would wash over you, that's what God experiences when we run to the world for companionship. We run to the world saying to God, you're not good enough for me, so I have involved sin in my life to fulfill what I'm not getting from you. In the passage that we just read, James 4 there, God lays out some steps to recovery. Steps to recovery after we have been unfaithful to God. Let me say as well that I believe you can take these steps to recovery if you have committed adultery or been unfaithful to your spouse. I believe that if your spouse is willing to give you a chance, you can follow these same steps to recovery with a spouse. Now, the difference is God is the perfect spouse. And God always welcomes us back regardless of what we've done. None of us here are perfect. And so that process can be harder. But nonetheless, we are to follow James 4 and what it teaches here. Let us, however, not forget the practicality of the passage. Not everyone has cheated on their earthly spouse. In fact, most of you won't. Prayerfully. However, if you've been saved any length of time, most everyone at some point flirts with sin, allows sin to become an affection in their life at some point in their Christian life. When this happens and we have been labeled as unfaithful to God, what's the road back? How do we recover? We're uh, blessed that God has given us a book that gives us Those steps. As I said in my prayer a few minutes ago, these steps are meant for those who have been unfaithful to God and have fallen in love with sin. But this is also uh, written and given to us to keep us honest with God. I made the comment last week, no one wakes up and decides they're going to just cheat on their spouse. There's a long path that a person goes down before they get there. No one does that to God either. Why does someone wake up one day and say, I'm going to love sin? Because they flirted with it, and they flirted with it some more, and they flirted with it some more, and then they embraced it. How do you keep that from happening? Well, you've got to do the right things. How many, how many of you here that are married, you understand that a happy marriage is constituted or brought about by you following healthy procedures in your marriage? How many of you understand that? Uh, I was talking to one church man here, and he was talking about how he makes a cup of coffee for his wife every morning. He makes it the same way. He puts the lid on it tight so it stays hot, and he puts it right by her nightstand before he leaves because he gets up very early. Those are the types of things you do to have a happy marriage. Those are the types of things. I heard of another married couple who, um, uh, they, uh, when it snowed outside, they would race to see who could clean off their spouse's windshield First, those are the things you do to have a happy marriage. Now, just I understand that everybody here is married, okay? But just like you have to follow some healthy habits, some good habits to maintain a great marriage, you've got to follow some patterns if you want to have a great relationship with God. 
And James 4 lays those out for us. So whether you're away from God and you're struggling with a sin and you just can't get past it, maybe you embraced it a long time ago and you became addicted to it and you don't know how to get past it. Maybe uh, you don't even like it anymore. You just don't know how to kick it. Maybe you're here tonight and you have loved sin and you feel bad about that and you're trying to stop having that affection and you're trying to draw yourself back to God. Or maybe you're here tonight and you have a great relationship with God and you just maybe need to be reminded about some things. Tonight we're going to look at the, the, the steps to recovery or the steps to reconciliation with God or for those of you that are here, the steps to maintaining a healthy spiritual relationship with God. So tonight let's jump in and look at five things that God says that we must do in order to recover from our unfaithfulness to a holy God. Number one, tonight out of James 4 we see submit to your spouse. Submit to your spouse. Look down with me at James chapter 4 and verse number 7. It says there, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. When a Christian has run to sinful things for his entertainment or for his affection, in essence what they have said is, God, you are not good enough for what I need. I have a sinful nature that desires to do wrong. I don't want to submit my sin nature to your will. I want to do things my way. What are you saying to God when you won't submit to Him? You're saying, my relationship with you is not sufficient enough to fulfill my needs. I'm going to run into the world and I'm going to embrace sin because that uh, gives me more of a satisfaction than you're giving me. How must that make God feel? You say, I don't mean to tell God that, but in essence, that's what we're telling God. God, you're not good enough for me, so I need sin to supplement. Where does this come from? Adultery, unfaithfulness to God, stems from rebellion. It's rebellion. It's saying, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. 1 Samuel 15.23, we have Samuel talking to King Saul and Samuel says to Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. Stubbornness is as idolatry, iniquity and idolatry. How do we recover from spiritual adultery? Well, step one, take your stubborn will. That stubborn will of I will do it my way. Take that stubborn will and give it to the Lord. Someone defines submission this way. They said, submission is to put down your hands and quit fighting. Put down your hands and quit fighting. Maybe you're a husband here tonight who has not been honest with your wife. You've not been totally faithful to your wife. You may think to yourself, I'm not supposed to submit to my wife. She's supposed to submit to me. Let me read a verse for you. Right in the marriage passage, Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, it would go on to say that wives are submit, supposed to submit themselves to their husband, but do you know that this act of submitting your will under each other is supposed to be a, a, a thing you both do together? You both do together? Let me just insert some marital advice here to the men. If you want to ride roughshod over your wife, And say, it's my way or the highway. You're not going to have a very happy marriage. Unless you just have a perfect wife. Let me just pause there and say, there is no such thing as a perfect wife. 
You say, well, pastor, isn't she supposed to submit to me? It's a whole lot easier for your wife to submit to you, sir, if you will submit to her in some areas. You know, in my home, uh, when it comes to the kitchen, Angela calls the shots. She calls the shots. If Angela didn't call the shots, I would die of food poisoning. I can't cook. Uh, in our home, Angela calls the shots when it comes to the decorating. Otherwise, there would never be anything on the wall. <laughs> um, I'd probably be a lot uh, richer if I didn't have to buy all those decorations, amen? No, I'm teasing. Angela's great with that stuff. There are areas in our marriage where I have come under and I have said, you call the shots here. Now, with God, He gets to always call the shots. It's our job. It's our job to submit to Him. We're always to submit to Him. Why? Because His way is perfect. You know what I've learned in my stubborn spiritual life is that I don't always want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. Anybody out there tonight, can, can, you, can you relate with that? I want to do it my way. There's a story told about a captain of a ship. He looked out in the dark night and he saw a faint light in the distance. Immediately, he told his signalman to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. You alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered. He commanded, uh, uh, his, his command had been ignored. So he sent a second message, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another signal was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. Alter your course ten degrees north. I am a battleship. Then the reply came. Alter your course ten degrees north. I am a lighthouse. I am a lighthouse. Hey, that battleship wasn't going to win. It was going to crash right on the rocks. And uh, with God, we can uh, look and, and, and things can be foggy and, and things can be unclear. And God says, do this. And we say, I don't want to do it. And God says, no, you need to do it. And, and, and we, we butt heads with God. And God says, listen, what you can't see in the fog, from up above the perspective I see, I can see it perfect. Please, just do it my way. Just do it my way. Tonight, some of you, what you need is just put down your hands and stop fighting a holy God. Come under and do it His way. Submit to your spouse. Point number two this evening is this. Say no to Satan. Look back with me at James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Notice this next part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you... You came to the altar last week and you got on your knees or you, you stood there in your pew last night or last week and you bowed your head and you, you told God, I'm sorry for the sin that's in my life. And you, you felt truly repented over it. You felt bad for the way that you made God feel with your sin. Now what? Now what? Let me ask some questions tonight. What was it that lured you away from God to begin with? Just because you have an emotion of repentance now, does that mean that you're no longer going to be tempted? How do you walk away from the seduction of sin? You feel bad about it, but you, 
you, you still have this affection, this affinity for sin that you just can't kick. Look, you know you ought not watch the raunchy TV programs, but you just can't help but watch the raunchy TV programs. You know you ought not go to those places. You ought know you ought not put those substances in your body. You, you know you ought not talk a certain way, but you have an affinity for it, an affection for it. How do you stop? I'd like to compare spiritual unfaithfulness with with physical unfaithfulness, if I could, just for a moment. We must, however, keep one thing in mind. God is our perfect spouse. He's perfect. None of us are the perfect spouse. Neither are we married to the perfect spouse. With that said, why would a person be lured away by a third party to have... Uh, to, to be unfaithful. You know, when a bride and groom stand at a wedding altar and the girl's all decked out in a white dress and the guy's standing there in a tux or however it was that you got married, maybe you didn't follow the traditional way, but you stand there on your wedding day and you hold each other's hands and you, you glare into each other's eyes, what is it that you hope for? Is Do you hope that your marriage will end in a divorce in five years? Of course you don't. You, you, you stare at each other's eyes and you have plans of grandeur, dreams of grandeur. You have great plans of being that perfect spouse. You, 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 what keeps a couple happily married through a lengthy marriage? What is it? The answer really comes down to one word. Commitment. It's commitment. It's digging your feet in and saying, this is going to work. No matter what. I might have to make some tough decisions along the way. I'm not, I'm not going to allow this to end. It's commitment to say, I'm going to say no to temptation. I'm going to say no no matter what. It's commitment to fulfill the other's needs. It's commitment to conversation. It's commitment to growing in love one for the other. It's commitment to promoting the other person. It's commitment to love, to honor, and to cherish. It's commitment to fidelity. These, along with others, are the key ingredients to a happy and productive marriage. Now let me, let me parallel this with our relationship with God. We must remember that God is that perfect spouse. God is committed to fulfilling our every need. Uh, you're there uh, in uh, the book of James. Can you hold your place there? Flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. God is committed to you. Now let me say tonight, if you're not married, uh, maybe you've gone through a, 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 a bad uh, marriage, or maybe and now you're separated, or you're divorced. Can I say tonight, uh, don't let that hang over your head Cling to the Lord. Just cling to God. Let Him hold you near and dear. And you cling to Him and let Him be your spiritual spouse. God is committed to fulfilling your every need. Look with me at verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You get in a bad spot? Turn the Bible to Philippians 4.19 and read that promise and remind yourself that God is going to supply your need. Why? Because God is the perfect spouse and He is committed to fulfilling your every need. Let me give you another one. God is committed to having open conversation with you. Open conversation. Uh, uh, they asked men and women separately, put them in two different rooms, and they asked several couples this in a survey, and they asked women, they said, how much conversation, do you, uh, uninterrupted conversation do you need to have with your husband every day in order to f- be fulfilled? And the wives said by average an hour a day. 
They asked the men the same question, and the men came back and said, five minutes a week. There's a disconnect here. <laughs> An hour a day is not realistic, especially in the hectic world we live in. But neither is five minutes. Five minutes. Can I tell you, though, that you can have an hour a day with God if you so want it? Jeremiah 33.3 Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. If you call unto Him, He's going to answer you. He's going to answer you. You know, if you're young in your Christian faith, you may not understand the concept of communicating with God. You might feel like prayer is nothing more than talking to yourself. I think that's where it probably starts for all of us. But as you begin to grow in your prayer life and your walk with God, you read the Bible and God speaks to you. And then you bow your head and pray and you speak back to God. The best way to have open conversation with God is with your Bible open and a heart of prayer. It's great communion with the Lord. He's committed to open conversation with you. Tonight we're talking about what makes a relationship work and its commitment. We talked about how that God is committed to fulfilling your need. God is committed to having open conversation. Let me give you another one here. God is committed to loving us as much as He possibly can. He's committed to loving us as much as He possibly can. How much can an infinite God love you? An infinite amount. I love Galatians 2.20. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, and I love this, who loved me and gave Himself for me. My friend, you're loved. You say, how much does God love me? He loved you so much that he, he allowed His Son to hang on a cross and become your sin. He loved you so much that He allowed your sin to kill Him. So that you could be restored with God. How, how committed is God to loving you? Had you been the only person to live and you had sinned, God would have found a way to become your sin and die in your place so that you could have that relationship restored. You say, Pastor, I don't feel very loved in life. Then you are not focusing on the love of God. What makes a marriage work? What makes a relationship work? Commitment. Commitment to fulfilling the other's needs. Commitment to having open conversation. Commitment to loving uh, 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 the other as much as, uh, as, as possible. Let me give you another one. Uh, God is committed to speaking favorably of us to His Father. He's, he, he, he's committed to speaking favorably of us to His Father. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me if you would. Verse 26. Romans chapter 8 quickly. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. We, we see that God loves to speak of us favorably. To his father. He loves to brag on us. You ever been standing there and uh, someone that you loved dearly didn't know you were around? And then you hear them talking about you? And they're bragging on you? Talking about how much they love you and how wonderful you are? Boy, doesn't that just make your heart swell? Doesn't making you know that that person cares for me? 
what God is in heaven favorably speaking of us to His Father. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You ever been there where you just didn't know what to pray? You knew you needed to pray, you know you wanted to pray, but the words just weren't adequate. You got on your knees and you tried and Maybe you said something like, Oh God. Oh God. The Holy Spirit inside of you takes that to heaven. And He tells God exactly what you need. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit inside of you utters to Jesus our needs, and Jesus takes it to the Father. Why? Because God is committed. Christ is committed to speaking favorably of us to His Father. What, what does it take to make a relationship work? It takes commitment. God is the perfect spouse. God is committed to loving, honoring, and cherishing us. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. My friend, tonight let me just tell you that God does not just love you, He honors you. God does not just honor you, He cherishes you. I think about God reaching down in the sand and forming Adam with His fingers. How much God must have loved Adam. And how much God must have loved Eve. You know, the truth is, God loves you just as much as He loved them. And that's a pretty powerful thought. He's committed to loving you, honoring you, and cherishing you regardless of how you treat Him. Let me give you one more tonight. God is committed to fidelity. He's committed to fidelity. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God says, listen, you can uh, run around on me. You can uh, fall in love with the world. You can uh, cheat on me with the world and have an affection for sin. You can watch your raunchy TV and you can uh, have all your addictions and you can uh, uh, run around with the wrong crowd and you can uh, cut, cut, smoke and chew and run with those that do. And uh, It doesn't matter. I'm still going to be faithful to you because I love you. Unfaithfulness occurs when one or both partners quit being committed to the key elements that makes the marriage go. If we cheat on God, it is never because of His lack of commitment to us. Listen closely here. It is always because of our lack of commitment to God. If this right here between you and God isn't working, it's never His fault. Never. Sometimes we need to look in the mirror and say, where has my commitment to God slipped? God is committed to you. Let me offer one more thought here. The point we're making is you need to say no to Satan. Here you have God, the perfect spouse. 
He's dumping all this commitment on you. Over here on the other side, you got Satan. And Satan's not running around in a red suit with horns and a tail. Okay? Satan is very good at coming alongside and trying to lure you away. I, I have known couples and I have known men who have, who have been unfaithful to their wife. And, and I had one man in particular tell me, he said, I don't even know how it happened. He said, I, I, I had some problems, some run-ins with my wife at home that were minor. Satan exploited a little hole in time, and this this woman slithered into my life and 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 pulled me away. It happened so subtly, so quickly. Satan works like that. He he looks for some frustration in your heart. Those seeds of doubt we talked about that come from not understanding the faithfulness of God this morning. Satan looks to slither in that gap and, and he looks to lure you away from God. He, he wants you to feel like you gotta fit in at work, so you gotta talk about the things they talk about and act the way that they act and do the things that they do. And, and the next thing you know, you're over here having an affinity, having an affair, uh, being adulterous with Satan and sin, and God's over here going, hold on just a minute, what did I do that caused you to leave me? I was committed to you. And uh, we must get to a place where we realize our sin. We come crawling back to God. We submit to Him. And then we turn and we say, No, Satan, you're not going to pull me back again. Beyond just the uh, falling in love with God and walking with Him on a daily basis and spending time in the Bible in prayer, there's another piece of advice I'd like to offer you. You must learn to break the addiction inside of your flesh. And addictions come in all forms. Listen, we think of addictions, we think of alcoholism and, and, and the abuse of pharmaceuticals and street drugs. And we think about pornography and all the different various forms of addictions. But can I tell you that people can be addicted to a whole lot more than that. People can be addicted to lying. And people can be addicted to a bad attitude. People can be addicted to complaining. And people can be addicted to anger. Whatever the case is, whatever sin you've fallen in love with, you've got to train your flesh to just flat out say, No, I won't do it. And you begin to break that cycle of sin through the help of God. What you'll learn is that you begin to get freedom. Freedom from sin and Satan. Number one, we see that we are to submit to, submit to your spouse. Number two, say no to Satan. Number three, notice this, step toward the Savior. Step toward the Savior. Look down with me at James chapter 4 and verse 8. The Bible says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Now, let's review. These are put in the order they're put in for a reason. Before you can draw nigh to God, you've got to submit under God's will. You can't draw nigh to God if you're not submitting to God. How many of you believe that tonight? You can't Draw nigh to Him if you're not willing to submit to Him. The second thing you got to do is resist the devil. You resist the devil. And guess what? Just like God, or rather, just like Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness, the devil flee from Him. The devil will do the same thing with you. Just quote that Bible. Quote that Bible. Quote that Bible. Pray, and, and I'm reminded of Hebrews 2. I believe it's the last verse in the chapter that says that He will secure you, or He will fortify you. He will run to your aid in a time of temptation. Say no to Satan. 
After you're doing those things, the next step is to, the next thing to do is to step toward the Savior. There was an older couple that uh, drove past some newlyweds. The wife noticed that the newlywed bride was just nestled right up next to her husband. A look of love sickness in her eyes as she was just hanging on his arm while he was driving down the road. And the wife leaned up against her door. And she looked over at her husband and said, You know, that used to be us. The husband looked over at his wife and gave her a smirk and said, I haven't moved. Still in the same spot. You can come back over anytime you want. You know, God hasn't moved. Still in the same spot. He's still just as committed to you. He still loves you. He still loves you just the same. Revelation 2.4 God is speaking to the church of Ephesus through the pen of John. And Revelation 2.4 says, Nevertheless, I have some, some ought against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. God hasn't moved. We are the ones that leave His side. God's promise stands firm. If we will work to step toward Him, He will always take a step toward us. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen this before, and, 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 and I hate to be redundant on you, but we have new people in the church who maybe have never seen this, so this is necessary. Brother Mark, if you'll stand over there by the piano for me. God's watching you. And God was here. And you used to be by His side. And sin took you from God. You've been submitting yourself to God. You've been doing your best to say no to Satan and, and his temptation. The next step is you're going to draw an eye to God. And God's watching you. And you take a step toward God. And God takes a step toward you. For every step you take, that's two steps. God takes one more step. Or rather, you take one more step. God takes one more. You've cut the gap down by two more steps. Takes another step. God takes a step. Draw an eye to God. He draws nigh to you. One more. And one more. You may feel like you're a long way from God. You get back one step at a time. Just one step at a time. Thank you, Brother Mark. You've got to draw nigh to God. I, I, I wonder if sometimes the opposite isn't true. We push away from God and God says, okay, I'll push away from you. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road of the message tonight. It is easy to listen to a sermon, get to the invitation, bow our head, maybe come to the altar and pray, and leave out of here with nothing really changing. You're going to draw an eye to God, then you're going to have to change something in your life. You're going to have to tell God, okay, I am doing this so that I can be closer to you. Are there TV or movie habits that need to change? Maybe tonight you say to God, I'm dropping this habit. Not that it's sinful outright, but it's keeping me from being closer to you. Maybe there are music habits that got to go would cut down that distance between you and God. 
Maybe there are friends with whom you need to disassociate. Maybe there are internet habits that need to, need to go. I'd ask you tonight, what are you going to change that will say to God, See, I removed this from my life so I could be closer to you. Now, I'm not trying to dictate to you what that should be, but will you get serious with God tonight and say, God, I love you with all my heart. I know you're committed to me. And if anything inside of me has left that first love, then I will remove the object that's in the way, whether it's sinful or not, so that I can be closer to you. All of us in here have something we can identify, whether it's big or small, and say, God, I'm willing to set that out of my life so that the two of us can be closer together. Spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. You've been unfaithful to God. You've been running around with sin. Or maybe uh, 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 you've been flirting with sin. Maybe you just want to better that relationship with God. What are the steps? Submit to your spouse. Submit to God. Number two, say no to Satan. Number three, step toward the Savior. Number four, notice, sanitize your style of living. Oh my, James 4, 8. Boy, does it hit home hard. The next part of the verse, look there, it says, Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinner, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. This verse addresses two areas that we need to clean up. First, it addresses the hands or the outside of the body. When we clean the hand, uh, clean our hands, as James 4, 8 tells us, to do, we, uh, we are looking at material items or worldly people in our lives that are responsible for us uh, to, uh, to be wayward in our relationship with God. We are in essence saying, uh, I am making changes that will directly change how I am perceived and who I really am. Notice, however, that verse 8 goes on to tell us that we should also purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is someone who has their hands clean, but their heart dirty. Ah, everyone, look at me. I, I got it down. I work in this ministry and that ministry, and I do this and I do that, and, and I can quote the Bible to you, and, and, and I, 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 can, I can list up all these spiritual things that are on a checklist that I do. But deep down inside, you are filled with filth. Let me put it to you like this way. Several years ago, I was made Spanish pastor at Granite Baptist Church in, in uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland, right outside of Baltimore. They made me the Spanish pastor, and I didn't speak much Spanish. I was given an uh, interrupter to uh, help me with my sermons. Some of you get that later. Um, Juan Lopez was his name. actually did a great job translating for me, interpreting for me. And um, through the process of me being the Spanish pastor and reading my Bible in Spanish and, 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 and taking some Spanish lessons on the computer and things, I began to learn the Spanish language. I got to a place where I could preach an entire sermon in Spanish without any help. And, you know, uh, people think, uh, and I've had many, many people ask this question, and those of you that are bilingual, I know you've all been asked this question many times. Um, uh, do you have to, are, are you able to translate uh, from English to Spanish that fast in your brain? How many here have ever been asked that question? That's not how it works. When I'm speaking Spanish, I only think in Spanish. That's it. Unless I come to a word I don't know, then it's English brother pops up. And guess what? When I'm preaching in English, I think in English. I don't think in Spanish. 
I remember um, uh, after Angel and I got married, uh, she was working in the nursery at the first church we were at, and I was beginning to learn some Spanish. And the word for take this is the word toma in, in Spanish. And I'm standing there in the nursery with her after church. There's just a child or two left. The parent was in there. And, and so I was in there, and I was playing with a little kid. And, and, uh, and, I, and I said to the little, the little English baby, I said, Toma! And Angela just died laughing because I'm speaking Spanish to this English child. And, and, uh, and I catch myself every now and then while I'm speaking English, a, a Spanish word will just fall out. And it's, it's part of the struggle of being bilingual. Anybody here bilingual knows what I'm talking about. And sometimes it can get you embarrassed, get you in trouble a little bit there. But, uh, what, what, what am I trying to draw here? What point am I trying to make? Some of you know the language of, of the church in the Bible very well. And you know the language of the world very well. While you're at work, you don't talk anything like a Christian. Then you come to church and it's, it is good to be in God's house. You pray prayers that are flowery. I thank the Heavenly Father. And I'm not for someone praying a prayer that sounds scriptural, and I don't mean to mock that. What I'm more getting at is, don't be a hypocrite. Listen, I think it's great that you clean up the outside and you come to church, you put on your Sunday best. I think you ought to do that. I think you ought to give your best to the Lord when you come to His house. But if you're going to work on your outside being clean, boy, put more time and attention to the inside being clean. How do you draw nigh to God? You know what? God stands there and He looks at you. And He sees your hair combed. He sees your nice outfit. He sees the Bible that's in your lap. But God looks through the exterior and He sees your heart. How putrefying to God it must be when we live all this sin in our private lives and we stumble into church pretending to be something that's just not really who we are. God's sitting there going, you may be fooling all those people in that church house. You're not fooling me. You're not fooling me one bit. That doesn't draw us nigh to God. That pushes us from God. Sanitize your style of living. Clean up your heart. I've had people say to me, Pastor Lejeune, you need to preach harder and you need to be meaner and you need to yell louder. You know, Jesus was really only hard on one group of people. That was the Pharisees. Outside of that, Jesus didn't preach a whole lot of hard sermons. But in Matthew 23, Jesus uh, uh, peeled back the hide of the Pharisees and poured in the salt. And He called them basically every name under the sun. Matthew 23, 27, we get one portion of that sermon. He says to the Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, for ye are likened to whited sepulcher, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And I'd say here tonight that if you're a Pharisee, you need me to preach hard at you. If you're not a Pharisee here tonight, then you need me to show you the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. You know, the truth is, all of us at times can deal with some level of hypocrisy. What God wants out of you is to work very hard at having the inside clean, the inside pure. I want you to sanitize your hands. It's important. I want you to have a clean heart. Let me just address one other thing here quickly. There are those that say, well, I can wear whatever I want to wear. I can act however I want to act. I can look however I want to look. God sees my heart, which is true. 
But I can't see your heart. I can only see the outside. I can't see your heart, and neither can the people at the mall, neither can the people at Walmart, neither can the people at the grocery store, neither can your neighbors. So on the outward, outside, represent Christ well. Man seeth on the outward appearance, but God seeth the heart. Let's sanitize our hands. Let's also sanitize our hearts. Point number one, we're going to recover from uh, spiritual unfaithfulness or we're going to cling to God tighter. We're to submit to our spouse. We're to say no to Satan. We're to step toward the Savior. We're to sanitize our style of living. Number five, and lastly, notice, we're to show sorrow over sin. Show sorrow over your sin. Look down with me at verse 9 of James chapter 4. The Bible says there, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy... The heaviness. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Can you turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. If this isn't a verse you're familiar with, I'd recommend you get familiar with it real quick. If you're in the habit of memorizing verses, this is a good one to memorize. And here Paul is speaking to a very carnal church. In the book of 2 Corinthians, they had made a little bit of a rebound. And he's addressing that rebound. And he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. You couple that with James 4, verse 9, where you're going to sorrow to repentance. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And let us not forget Psalm 51, after David had messed up with Bathsheba, and then turned around and murdered Uriah. God sent a preacher to point out his sin. How did David respond? He got on his face and he sorrowed. He sorrowed over his sin. David said this in Psalm 51.12, he said, Restore unto me the joy of, my, of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. When do you experience true joy? True joy is experienced when you are at peace in your relationship with God. That's it. If you're not joyful on the inside, you're not peaceful on the inside, you and God have a broken, fractured relationship. Look, the world, the, the, the winds, uh, the wind of the world may howl around you, but if you are at peace with God, it doesn't matter. There's a joy and peace there. You know, we're really good at falling in love with sin. But what we need to get good at is being sorrowful when we sin. Seeing sin for exactly what it is. Tonight, I'm here to say that when sin gets between God and I, and my joy is stolen, uh, what should I do? I should work hard to remove the sin, rectify my relationship. That will, in turn, 
restore my joy. Let me say that again. The formula here for restoration of joy, remove the sin, rectify my relationship, that will in turn restore my joy. You may be sitting here tonight with a big scowl on your face. You may be sitting here tonight depressed and and, and bogged down and, and filled with anxiety and fear and worry. What do you need to do? You need to remove the sin. You need to rectify your relationship. And what will God do? In turn, He will restore your joy. You know what God wants to see in you? God wants to see that you hate sin. When God sees that you hate sin, and you sorrow over that, He draws you to Him. He draws you to Him. Think of it this way. Again, we're paralleling this. If you've been unfaithful on your spouse and you continue to communicate with that person that you had been unfaithful with, what would that do to that relationship, that marital relationship? Picture that other person as sin. You tell God, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm back! And then you turn right back around and run to it. You come back, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm back! And you run right back over to it. What God wants to see is that we're broken. We're contrite. Then He welcomes us back. He welcomes us back. Restore to me the joy of Thy salvation. And uphold me with Thy free spirit. Back in James chapter 4, verse 10. We see what we get. We see what we get when we have followed these steps. Verse 10 really summarizes verses 7, 8, and 9. It says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. You're not going to be able to submit. You're not going to be able to say no to Satan. You're not going to be able to uh, 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 step toward the Savior. You're not going to be able to sanitize your style of living. You're not going to be able to follow these steps unless you humble yourself. Unless you humble yourself. When you do that, the Bible says He's going to lift you up. Someone wisely put it this way, be humble or be humiliated. The choice is yours. You can either walk humble, or God's going to knock you off your block and humiliate you. Boy, choose wisely. My question tonight to you is this. Are you following these steps to stay close to God? Is there one maybe you have fallen away from a little bit that you could do better? We all, we all need to do the things in our relationship with God that draw us to Him and draw us tighter to Him. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening.